Hey there, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. Together, we're two cranky film critics from Flyover Country, co-hosting a podcast that should probably be called a Prairie Home Curmudgeon. On this very special episode, Hunter makes amends for his cinematic sins with a war crimes review of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Then in special features, we will discuss the life and legacy of writer-director John Hughes during Don't You Forget About Hughes. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... In a blatantly shameless act of self-promotion, Chris and I recently held a contest to randomly award a loyal listener one free copy of the Dinosaurs in Space epic Rexodus, signed by series co-creator Paul Wizikowski. It was basically a bid to buy your love. So we asked you to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or review us on iTunes, for which we awarded double points because, let's face it, our corruption knows no bounds. So Chris, upon reviewing the millions and millions of entries... What surprised me the most was our international audience. For instance, we have one listener in Japan. I don't even begin to know how that happened. Do you think maybe all of the Godzilla references have paid off? You know, I was thinking maybe it was Godzilla. You know, Chris, I hadn't even considered that, but you might be right. Dear listener from Japan, are you Godzilla? If so, please let us know. In the meantime, we have to announce the winner of our Rexodus giveaway. Are you ready for this, Hunter? Only if the winner is me. It's not, you dweeboid cheapskate. You have to buy yours like everyone else. Point taken. So tell us, Chris, who is soon to be the proud owner of a Rexodus comic book, signed by series co-creator Paul Wizikowski? Hunter, and my fellow Midnight Warriors, the winner of the Rexodus giveaway is... You know what? I think I'm going to wait a little longer. You know, for suspense. You know, Chris, sometimes you can be a real jerk. But let's be honest, we all knew you were going to do that. Stay tuned, folks. We'll announce the winner of our Rexodus giveaway later in the show. Very well, then. Up next, Chris and I jump into a hot tub time machine back to 1986 to review my war crime, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. This is my ninth sick day this semester. It's getting pretty tough coming up with new illnesses. If I go for ten, I'm probably going to have to barf up a lung. So I better make this one count. The key to faking out the parents is the clammy hands. It's a good non-specific symptom. I'm a big believer in it. A lot of people will tell you that a good phony fever is a deadlock, but uh, you get a nervous mother, you could wind up in a doctor's office. That's worse than school. You fake a stomach cramp, and when you're bent over, moaning and wailing, you lick your palms. It's a little childish and stupid, but then so is high school. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. To a certain demographic, the films of John Hughes are essentially a genre unto themselves. Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, Weird Science. Through these movies, Hughes found an emotional resonance with Reagan-era adolescence that has continued to connect with generations of geeky girls and blundering boys ever since. Hughes seemed to remember what it was like to be a teen, and through that lens, found a way to translate vulnerability into relatable characters. From Samantha Baker's sense of utter invisibility, to John Bender's falsely flippant facade, his characters, or his main characters anyway, were designed to connect with the audience through their flaws, regardless of whether they were geeks, sportos, motorheads, dweebs, dorks, sluts, or buttheads. But then there's the case of Ferris Bueller the most enterprising truant team to ever cut class and force friends into mandatory merriment. Sure, 
His Bud Cameron packed plenty of darkness and depression for the both of them. But he's not the main character. His name doesn't start the title of the picture. And the titular character certainly isn't the kid we all related to growing up. At best, he's the kid we wished we could be, or maybe just the kid we wanted to hang out with. Rewatching Ferris Bueller's Day Off in preparation for this review, I realized a couple things. One, I've seen this movie way more than I thought. And two, Ferris Bueller's a borderline psychopath. Hunter, you have a very different history with Ferris Bueller than I do. This review marks the first time you've seen the film, or at least seen it from start to finish. I have so many questions for you, and I really don't expect you to answer all of them, but here they are anyway. I'm curious. A. How did you classify yourself in high school? 2. Even if he is a psychopath, do you still think Ferris Bueller is a righteous dude? And D. How do you feel about the movie trope of characters not being able to hear anything when the person on the other end of the phone covers the receiver? And actually, I have one more question. You have yet to be enamored with any of the war crimes you've paid penance for. And I sense from your A Prairie Home curmudgeon line that this might not be the one to turn that trend around. So I guess I'm going to have to attempt to bestow upon you some Bullerian manipulation. Howard Hawks once said, a good movie is three good scenes and no bad scenes. How do you respond to that as it relates to Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Well, Chris, you've given me much to contemplate, so I think I'm going to answer the two that I can uh, respond to most easily right now. A, I would classify myself in high school much the way I am now. My personality in many ways was, if not fully formed, 95% formed by the time I was about 10 or 11, 12, and I've gradually just been aging into my personality. So I am kind of in a stage of permanence, you so might So you were say. a 60-year-old man when you were like 12? There's no two ways about it. Yeah, no, okay. that, that I certainly was. And then I'll give our Midnight Warriors a little peek behind the curtain here. The Prairie Home Curmudgeon line was actually conceived about a month ago as okay. I was listening to a Prairie Home Companion and thought, wow, this is... Some really folksy nonsense. I can't stand this. And so the Prairie Home Curmudgeon line was born. So it didn't have anything to do with. No, it had, no, it had nothing to do. It was 100 percent about that. So, so what, did you, what did you think of the movie? We'll get to the uh, the whole phone trope later. Hopefully so, Chris, because that is far and away one of the most powerful moments in the motion picture. That Without we, a doubt. Oh, yeah, that we absolutely have to talk about. You and I are in a habit of quoting a certain Chicago film critic, uh, Roger Ebert, to justify our viewpoints on a particular picture. However, rather than quoting Roger Ebert, I'm going to paraphrase Gene Siskel, who said that this picture didn't really know what it wanted to be until the very end. And to that, I would add that the picture that it wanted to be at the very end was not what I was anticipating and not what I wanted to see. But I will say this about it is even though I didn't necessarily enjoy it so much as a movie, I really, really was fascinated by it as a piece of popular popular culture. Okay. Would you like me to expand on yeah, that a yeah. little go, bit? Because that was, ahead. I'm, I'm, um, I think the way I, what I was expecting to see and the way our pop cultures remembered this movie is just a nonstop, raucous, rock, rock'em, sock'em, mile a minute of comedy about a righteous dude who just gets into wacky adventures. Mm-hmm. However, I was surprised to find that this was much more of a John Usian kind of teen angsty movie mm-hmm. about young people who their parents just don't understand and college is scary and high school is tough. So this was really much more of a cousin to 16 Candles or The, the Breakfast, Breakfast Club, Club than I yeah, was anticipating yeah. it to be. Interesting. Okay. So um, so it, that's what stood out to me is it wasn't 
it wasn't what I was expecting, but what I was expecting was based on how people remember it, mm-hmm. which is something that it's not. Okay, so I mean, in that case, was it was it a pleasant surprise? Then I mean, no, not really, because okay. I mean, being a sixty year old man, even at the age of twelve, <laughs> the whole teen angsty thing never really did anything for me. Okay, that's yeah. a, maybe maybe we can get into that a little later in special yes, exactly. Dive, we can, dive a little deeper a, into why into talk this. about Ferris Bueller when we can uh, psychoanalyze Hunter Case? Yeah, um, I honestly was not aware, like I said, of of how many times I've seen this movie. I mean, when I put it on, I realized like I know lines verbatim and timing even of of lines. And um I did a little bit of uh research as well preparing for the Hughes discussion because I while I know Hughes films, I'm not like I haven't been through his entire catalog. Like I hadn't seen Sixteen Candles. I watched that for the first time recently. The um and and a couple others. The thing that I found most interesting watching this with those so close was how connected pieces of his little microcosm universe of these, you know, kind of upper middle class Chicago kids is. Well, and let's be frank what it is, and I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail for this, but let's be frank what it is, is a bunch of spoiled rich kids who, uh, who are, who feel really entitled and they, and they, and their parents don't love them enough, even though maybe they do. Who knows? It's. I mean, I. I think it kind of is, and maybe. Maybe this is because you're more. You, I, are you? Do you relate more with the this parents? Is, yeah, of these actually, movies? Is that the I, case? I know where this conversation is going to end in special features, but <laughs> yes, I think I relate more to the parents okay. in this case because I think I think throughout those, you know, particularly the ones that he directed that are the um, these high school angsty sort of movies. Uh, he gets at something that's I don't think is necessarily a immaculate truth, but it's more something that as a teenager you relate to because, you know, you're just you're kind of in a place where things are changing rapidly and you're gaining a you're gaining responsibility, you're gaining you know, all, all of this, but you're still you're still stuck in high school. You're still in a place. Yeah. And that, it's one of those things I, I understand what you're saying. I've read about other people experiencing <laughs> that, but it's one of those things. I'm not kidding. I just I'm, I'm kind of made of stone. I was fully formed out of the womb. And okay. so I can't I can't necessarily relate to this this whole changing and evolving thing. So what was was there anything in here that you did relate to? Uh, relate to, I mean, maybe the principal. Okay. Like, I mean, okay. I, I really, I, I really related to, uh, to Jeffrey Jones's performance as the principal because the kid belongs in school. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's trying to help him. And yet here he is a victim of all these little shenanigans that Ferris is pulling on him. I mean, you got to feel sorry for that kind of guy. I, I guess I could see that point a little. I mean, because he's catching him, you know, getting what, because Ferris isn't like, like I said, he's, he's kind of a psychopath. He's not like a, uh, He's not a clean cut, you know, sort of kid. Like he's manipulating everyone. Well, I think it's worth noting then that at the, you're older now, having seen this picture than you were probably the first time, mm-hmm. the first four hundred times, and now you are finally seeing Ferris Bueller for what he is, which is, yeah. of course, a psychopath. Yeah, I, I had never seen him in that light before, um, and it was, you know, I guess I have a little bit of empathy for Ed Rooney, but still, he's he's kind of a slime ball like it's and i i think you get that with a lot of characters in in these john hughes movies i mean like the teacher in the breakfast club uh what's richard vernon um played by paul gleason he's sort of the he's the guy that is sort of bender's john bender's direct adversary like he's after him he at one point tries to fight him well Um, and to that point i think that's really speaks to john Hughes' ability to pick character actors because within this picture Again, like I said, uh, Rooney was in the right and Ferris Bueller was in the wrong. 
but one, the casting of Matthew Broderick as the very likable Matthew Broderick as mm-hmm. Ferris Bueller, and then charisma out the butt. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. A medical terminology. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, Jeffrey Jones as Ed Rooney. And this was actually, I didn't know this, this came before Beetlejuice, and I had seen okay. Beetlejuice yeah. years and years ago, so it was kind of funny. It, it's always kind of funny whenever you see something that came out before something you had seen many, many years mm-hmm. before. And if it weren't played by Jeffrey Jones, I'm not sure that he would have been as slimy. That was something that well, I think there, Jeffrey there's Jones something really to, to there's something to the mustache and the the nose and the slight smile. Like he's he's halfway smiling, halfway grimacing or Well, and I or, don't know if you knew this, but one of the lines of like my cheese blowing in the wind or something like that, that was something he came up with. And <laughs> I think that was one of the few lines that I did uh laugh out loud, L O L at and so that was completely improvised. Um, Chris, I'm going to blow your mind, maybe. Okay, you try, sa- it, try yeah. it. <laughs> You said in the intro that Cameron is not the main character. It's Ferris Bueller. It's Ferris Bueller's movie. I'm going to contest that because in Joseph Campbell, myth of the hero kind mm. of thinking, the protagonist is the one who undergoes some sort of change. Mm-hmm. I would argue that actually Cameron is the main character, at least he's the protagonist, whereas Ferris Bueller is the mentor figure. Ferris Bueller is Obi-Wan Kenobi, if you will, in this movie. See, I but then they gave Obi Wan Kenobi far too big of a part. Like it was a movie I, in which from, the mentor if, is the main character. Yeah, if you're, I mean, if you're approaching it from the Joseph Campbell point of view, like I totally agree. But I don't think he's like I don't think that's what Hughes was going for. His his intent was kind of to present this because this this movie doesn't get quite as emotional as like Cameron definitely has has that arc, mm-hmm. but. For the most part, we're on Ferris Bueller and Ferris Bueller. Everything's peachy from start to finish. You know, like everyone loves him. He's somehow connected up through everyone in the school and the town. And, um, you know, there's that scene where he's talking to like a freshman on the on the payphone at school yeah. and then he gives it to another one. And then he gives it to a girl and um, he's in nearly every frame. There's not even even when it is Cameron on screen, Ferris Bueller's just off to the side. Mm-hmm. Um and I well, think it was smart to write in this Cameron character, though, because as I alluded to uh, in the opening, I think John Hughes, particularly in uh, maybe some of his earlier films, had a tendency to marginalize characters that weren't the main characters. Someone like Long Duck Dong or even the uh, the girlfriend of Jake. I can't think of the kid's name, the, the basically love interest of um, – Molly Ringwald in 16 Candles. Mm-hmm. That girlfriend is like a one note sort of character. It's like, oh, she's she's a rich bratty girl and she's a slut. And um, the, the way it was handled was not great. Uh, whereas here, like you get a little more depth with Cameron, even if he's not a main character. And so I I appreciate that. I guess if if you're approaching it from a like. He's the one to latch on to. He's the one that you relate to. I do agree with that. Well, and I think that was the – in my opinion, that's the purpose. You asked at the at the beginning, was Ferris Bueller a psychopath? If Ferris Bueller occupied our world, he would qualify as a psychopath. But since he lives in Hughville or Hughesville, <laughs> uh, he, I think he's actually more of a trickster or jester character. And then Cameron mm. is the stand-in for the angsty 1980s entitled upper-middle-class teen okay. who we're supposed to relate to. and. Uh, Ferris Bueller is giving advice to us by life goes pretty fast. You better yeah, slow yeah. down. There's like almost from the very beginning, there's the direct address. To well, the camera. And, 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 and that direct address to the camera. I mean, it's not just it's not just supposed to be an interesting 
play on filmmaking. I think he's yeah. very literally having Ferris Bueller be our, be our Yoda, the people in the audience. <laughs> okay. okay. I, I mean, I think, I think what it does very effectively is it sets the tone of like, don't expect this to be like something that is completely realistic. Like we're going, we're going on a fun little ride and you're coming along. Well, and speaking of fun little ride, uh, to kind of buttress my point about Cameron being the main character and also my point at the front about how this movie is remembered as something that it's not, I would argue that the climax of this film is when Cameron, spoiler alert, the climax of this film is when Cameron kicks his dad's Ferrari out the window. And the Ferrari, of course, represents his dad's absent absentee role in his life. Mm -hmm. However, from my picture and kind of pop culture's picture, I would say that the climax of the film was the twist and shout parade moment that's kind of the big moment everyone remembers yeah but i I don't think that necessarily means it's the climax i mean the actually it's funny that you bring up the ferrari scene because that's the very first scene i ever saw from ferris ferris bueller's day off um and so it kind of actually painted a picture for me that it was going to be a little more dramatic than it actually was once i once i got around to seeing it. i mean i think i saw that in like middle school and then uh, finally saw the film in, in high school, but uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, that's, it's a moment he goes from being almost a paralyzed uh, victim of circumstance to standing up to his father, who he's terrified of and deciding, you know what, like this, this is a tragic thing, or this, this is a, this is a big, a big problem, but my dad's rich. He, you know, he restored this car. He can restore it again and I can take it. I can, I can face him you know, man to man and say, listen, I, I did it and I'm sorry, but, um, you know, things happen. And yeah, not to get all Freudian about Ferris here, but it's, it's Cameron was emasculate. Cameron was impotent. And by pushing that out, and like you said, faces dad, man to man, it was his, uh, entry into manhood. And like we talked about a second ago, Ferris was the mentor who instigated that. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I think he's doing Cameron once again, is our stand and Ferris is, Uh, speaking very directly to us in the audience yeah yeah now i have a question for you okay you said that you saw that saw that dramatic moment first that kind of painted the picture for you a a little bit yeah do you think that this would have been a better movie if it were just a mile a minute fun little romp about ferris bueller and his day off i think you absolutely need cameron to to ground it because i think like while those moments i love those moments. you know i love the the twist and shout and i love the rube goldberg machine that he's built you know sort of in his in his bedroom to trick people who ring the doorbell or or come into his room um that that he's there and he's sick those sorts of things uh but that's all just sort of uh i mean if it was all that it would be maybe more like a movie that hughes wrote but didn't direct later in the 90s baby's day out which is just like <laughs> kind of ridiculous or to, or kind of the, the Kevin McAllister home alone character. Yeah. But see, I think, I think McAllister and we'll, we'll yeah. get to this later, but I, I do think McAllister has something to uh, latch on to as he, he's very much a Hughesian character in that his parents have forgotten him. All right. You and I would be remiss in our duties if we didn't speak more on Matthew Broderick as Ferris Bueller. So let's talk a little bit about him. Uh, my what I think is kind of funny is my first entry into really being aware of this was in high school. My history professor was showing us Glory, which mm-hmm. came out in 1989, and he said that he was unable to take Matthew Broderick seriously <laughs> as a as a colonel in the Civil mm-hmm. War because he thought you know Ferris Bueller here's Ferris Bueller leading an army. So it's kind of funny. Do you think that this role prohibited Matthew Broderick from escaping it, and he'll always be Ferris Bueller? That's interesting. I. 
I don't know. I definitely still kind of see him as Ferris Bueller. It's not, and it's not, not to the point where like I see him in something else and I'm like, oh, you can't be doing anything different because you're, you're Ferris Bueller. But there is something weird to the fact that he still essentially looks exactly the same. You know, he's, he's aged, but he still has those, mm-hmm. those features. Whereas like, what's his name? Alan Ruck, the, uh, the guy that plays Cameron. Um, I actually knew him first from Spin City with Michael J. Fox. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Um, and he looks like, while he looks the same, he looks, older, mature, you know, like an adult or like Anthony Michael Hall, um, even in who actually looks like kind of a badass. Now I wouldn't want to mess with. Yeah. Even in something like Edward Scissorhands, which is, I guess, what, maybe like seven, eight years after Mm -hmm. um, Breakfast Club, maybe a little longer than that. But he, you know, very much matured and and looks much different. Well, and Um, given Roderick really doesn't. No, he doesn't at all. And just again, so I can perform my duties here, I have to make the perfunctory Dark Knight reference. Anthony Michael Hall looks really tough in that. Anyway, um, Matthew Broderick, it's funny, my reaction to him and this is going to be the complete opposite of yours and my history teacher is he even said he was quoted after this as saying, after I played the epitome of the cool popular guy, all I ever played was kind of weenie men. Mm. And so that's my experience is watching him play kind of wimps. And <laughs> then to see a wimp play Ferris Bueller, it took me a while to believe him. Okay. Interesting. Uh, when when did War Games come out? Uh, 83. So three years before okay. this. Dude. Because, I mean, I think he's kind of, while he's a nerdy kid, he's kind of a hacker kid. He has some, uh, he has some charisma there. He has some, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, power there. He's not really, you know, a weenie character. Well, you're that. going to love this, I assume. Would you like to know my very first Matthew Broderick movie? You can probably guess. The Lion King? Godzilla. Oh, of course. <laughs> Actually, of course, the, the Lion King. Okay, fine. The it was Lion, The Lion King, but yeah, Godzilla was the But The, the Lion first, King yeah. doesn't really count. Yeah, yeah but um, so anyway. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, my experience with Matthew Broderick was kind of the nerdy guy. Um, a little bit of history for you. I found this fascinating. Three movies that came out in 1986 were Ferris Bueller's Day Off, a star vehicle with Matthew Broderick, mm-hmm. Splash, a star vehicle with Tom Hanks, and then Top Gun, a star was, vehicle with- I was wondering there you go. if you were going to get to Top Gun. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise, not that Matthew Broderick's career is anything to sneeze at, but they both became super mega stars, mm-hmm. whereas Matthew Broderick is still, our pop culture views him as perpetually Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Why he's do you he's think- consistently getting work, but he's not. He hasn't- Oh uh, yeah, I mean Taking he's very big, on, very big on Broadway. Uh, solid career as a character actor in film, but he's not Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks. Yeah. Do you think? Why do you think that they managed to be such superstars, whereas he is still Ferris Bueller? Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know I, that's a good answer. Speaking of giant female reptiles destroying New York City. Okay. Um, but I I really don't have an answer for you, and I'm not like utterly familiar with all of Broderick's work. So I can't say like, Oh, well obviously he's been typecast or he's, you know, whatever. I, I don't have an answer for you. Like I do think as he gets older, he slowly begins to look more and more like Peter Laurie. And maybe he should take that to his advantage and, and try to go for some of those like sort of, creepy like on uh, morally ambiguous characters so if they ever remake Casablanca yeah with Chris Pratt in the Rickroll obviously yeah, yeah. they need to have Matthew Broderick in the Peter, Peter Laurie part I'm that's, fine with it that's yeah. really on to something um all right I and to, to the whole point about that is who Matthew Broderick reminds me of and this this may seem kind of strange at first but it's Henry Winkler because Henry hmm. Winkler as the Fonz defined coolness in much the same way that Ferris yeah, Bueller, yeah. Matthew Broderick's Ferris Bueller did, and yet all their roles after the fact, their most popular roles after the fact, they've been playing kind of weenie men. 
So do you think maybe that that's just their natural state and they were just anomalies when they played cool guys? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I think they have the they have the charisma to pull it off, obviously. Um, I with someone like uh, Henry Winkler, like when I think of him, I think of a the Fonz and B his character in Arrested Development mm-hmm. as the lawyer, who's a very different. You know, he's very skeezy, very like there's there's constantly something going on with him, like picking up transgender hookers or things like that. Uh, very much not the Fonz. Yeah, basically the opposite. Of yeah. Cool. Um, and but but he's not a weenie man per se. He's just sort of a skeezy guy. Uh, with Matthew Matthew Broderick, I mean, like I said, I haven't seen him in anything like that, so tough to say maybe it's just he's not getting uh not getting the right role i mean he gets he was in train wreck as a cameo as matthew broderick you know like he he could have been they they could have tried to use him in a in a better capacity bring him in as ferris bueller a grown-up <laughs> ferris bueller all right um i think this is probably a good place to end it uh, before we move on the role of ferris bueller was actually uh, offered to several other people so I'm going to name those people and see if you think anyone but Matthew Broderick. We're going to do like up. a thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, you might want to actually say thumbs up or thumbs All down, right, given fine. this is uh, podcasting. All right, Jim Carrey. Hmm. I'm I'm going to go thumbs medium. Like I think he has the charisma. I think I I mean I don't know what Jim Carrey in 1986 was like. Probably even more whacked out. And, and that's that's my thinking. And I think that wouldn't have been great. For this, yeah, he should have been taking his vaccines, and then maybe he would have to- he would have, he would have toned down a little bit. You're on to something here. All right, um, interesting uh, person next, Tom Cruise. He was actually up for it. Tom Cruise could have pulled it off. I think he would have brought a different intensity, though. So kind of scary. It would have been it would have been a different movie. Your point and, about Ferris being a psychopath would have been that much more yeah, relevant. But but it also would have been weird if if we would have had Ferris Tom Cruise's Ferris Bueller and Tom Cruise's Maverick in the same year because those characters seem like they're about ten years apart in as far as like. Uh, what you know where where they are in life no and you're absolutely right because maybe that to answer our question from a moment ago at 23 i think they're the same age matthew Broderick was playing teenagers and tom cruise was growing up so maybe that accounts for but it. just a couple of years before and i mentioned this when we talked about ghost protocol uh in risky business tom cruise looks like it. he's a baby face i would say risky business is his ferris bueller and it's a totally mm-hmm. different scenario okay yeah. last one robert downey jr huh I I would I would love to see the alternate universe version with Robert Downey Jr. To be honest, um, I think that would be really interesting. I yeah no I I think that he out of the ones I mentioned was probably the only and, one who could pull it off. And you know the earliest I've seen of Robert Downey Jr. is probably Chaplin, which I haven't seen okay. all of. But uh, you know and um, but he he brings something to that, and it's Robert Downey Jr. He just he just oozes that sort of. Uh, that character that that Ferris Bueller is like, I think it would have been a natural fit for him. All right. Um, since I can just see you bursting at the seams cause you so want to talk about this. And I also want to answer all of your questions. What's the deal with that movie going trope, wherever a guy covers up the end of the phone <laughs> to where people can't hear what's up with that. <laughs> no, really? Okay. I, you know, I, I asked it kind of in jest, but like, okay, for, first off, uh, let me just ask, like, does that ever bother you? I didn't even notice. I'm still okay. trying to remember that moment it's, in the movie when it, it happened. It's, it's whenever – and it's a immaculately edited scene. It's when Rooney's talking on the phone to Sloane's father and he thinks that it's Ferris Bueller and then Ferris Bueller calls up mm-hmm. and he's on the all other right. line. It's, it's that line or that, that scene. And you know, there's all of this like – 
Rooney will cover up the phone with his hand and then be like, get the, you know, and there's just a bunch of, a a bunch of calamity, you know, things are being knocked over or banged or whatever. And he's doing a lot of yelling and his assistant is doing a lot of yelling. And, but because they're covering the phone, no one can hear it. Uh, Same thing happens also in the um, scene where they're, he, the sausage King of Chicago scene um, Mm -hmm. at the restaurant. Um, I don't know. It's, it means absolutely nothing. Honestly, I brought it up just because I wanted to talk about, uh, wanted to talk about the, the scene with, with Rooney. I love like, that's a, it's a great moment of just pure comedy, perfectly edited between sort of the chaos going on in Rooney's office and the just calm, cool Cameron on the phone, just, you know, and, and he's doing that, that little face as he does the voice. Um, yeah. Was he, do, is that whenever he was doing, what's that character in Gilligan's Island, the rich man? I think that's who it was supposed to be. Oh, maybe I, he was I, doing a Mitt Romney impression or something. <laughs> <laughs> so his father, was he doing yeah, some yeah, father? Uh, actually, maybe. Wow. Wow. We have just broken a lot of ground <laughs> on this podcast. All right. Um, you love the film. I would say if I gave the impression that I didn't like it, I apologize. I would give it a solid three sausages out of four sausages i thought it was good i just i would have rather didn't take the turn down field street i would have liked to really so you you would have rather it be no cameron at all or well it just got a a wee bit much to me because the scenes you've mentioned the scenes i like the scenes we both uh enjoy are the ferris bueller wacky days off kind of stuff and Mm. i think that's where it succeeded (laughs) wacky days off exactly That, that was the alternate title actually yes they should have gone with that so speaking of uh, making a decision, Chris, since this was kind of the masterpiece of teen party comedy cinema, I'm hoping your beer recommendation today will be a Bud Light from a keg in a solo cup, red solo cup. Is <laughs> while, that while doing a keg stand upside down? Yes, is that what we get for that's, today? That that's not what we're going for. Um, I, I've got something. I've got some connections here. A All right. Bit. Um, you know, John Hughes was known for setting his films in his hometown of Chicago. So this recommendation comes from a brewery in our hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, it's Standard by Prairie Ales. As the name would suggest, Standard's a pretty tame beer for Prairie. But they're known for crafting some pretty bold and adventurous brews, so don't expect anything pedestrian. Uh, it's a dry hop saison style beer with a funky yeast flavor and a crisp, slightly citrus hoppy finish. Uh, I find I like the standard with a meal, so how about this? Why don't you invite some friends over for dinner and a movie? Uh, enjoy one while grilling some chicken or some brats. Uh, maybe some Chicago sausages would actually be uh, a, a proper My mouth meal. is watering at the thought. Yeah. Um, and then grab another one when you sit down and bask in the raw charisma of Matthew Broderick as Ferris Bueller. That's standard by Prairie Artisan Ales. That's only if you're in your 20s and 30s. However, if you're like me and you relate more to the parents in these movies, I'd recommend a vodka cocktail and some pain pills. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is currently collecting dust in your immature uncle's VHS collection. But if you ditched your VCR, you'll just have to stream it on Netflix. So tell us, does Ferris Bueller stand up to the ravages of time? Or is it, like your immature uncle, still stuck in a time warp? Let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave a voicemail as the Sausage King of Chicago at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break to discuss Don't You forget about yous. Someone said last night it would be if it's meant to be. Sound is so much easier than giving any effort. You shouldn't write those things to me. I know you're only gonna keep me up at 
John used as hallowed ground for most members of Generation X, and frankly, many millennials as well. Somehow, the bespectacled baby boomer, born in 1950, articulated the anti-authoritarian attitude of his audience in a way that earned him the adoration of his millions of minions, admirers, and imitators. So why do the motion pictures made by this mild-mannered Midwesterner from Michigan continue to move movie fans? Does he warrant his reputation as the patron saint of teen angst? Or is he simply the beneficiary of our national addiction to nostalgia? Today, Chris and I will consider the cultural legacy of this seminal writer-director in a discussion I'd like to call, Don't You, Do-Do-Do-Do, Forget About Yous. Chris, let's keep the conversation broad for now. Why do you think John Hughes resonates with so many, so many years later? Uh, I think we touched on this a little bit in uh, the Ferris Bueller discussion, but I think part of it for, you know, at least for me, seeing several of his films as a as a youth, you know, in high school with generally we'd get together as friends and watch them. There's something about uh, the way that he approached teenage characters and that weren't just, you know, like even if he was kind of making a sex comedy or kind of, you know, that sort of thing, he made characters that were a little more dynamic than you typically saw, you know? And, and I think a lot of that was in the flaws that he, he gave them. Each of them had problems and, I think that's something that you could condescend to, but I think he used it as a way to really connect with, uh, with youngsters, with teenagers, <laughs> I guess the old, the old young folks. But really, I mean, I think the breakfast club for me is the, uh, apex of John Hughes. So his and very first movie was the apex of his career. No, Pretty in Pink was his first. Are you sure? I'm, I'm sorry, not Pretty in Pink. Um, 16 Candles. Okay, his very second movie, this apex of his career. Well, yeah, his apex, the apex of his career as a writer-director connecting with teens, mm-hmm. I think. And I think it's because it's that ensemble cast. You know, it's not just one character that you're you're kind of following around with some friends and that sort of thing. It's You have these five kids that are each very different. And they're forced, you know, it's almost like a bottle episode of a TV show, but in, you know, long form, they're, they're forced to just hang out with each other for a day, Saturday afternoon, uh, in this, you know, library or learning facility, learning center, whatever they call it, uh, in in the high school and, uh, you know, try to relate to each other. And it's almost, you know, it's almost therapy for these kids. Well, let me let me throw this in here regarding just the Breakfast Club and perhaps it can be applied to his entire career as well. Do you think that he dealt with cliches? It's more pronounced in Breakfast Club, but do you think overall all of his characters were kind of cliche? I, I think so, but I think he used the cliche like he he wasn't just well, I, I say that I mean, long duck dong as we briefly touched on not like, a cliche more of a uh stereotype would be the word there a really really terrible stereotype. i mean i think don't they whenever he's introduced uh there's a gong there that goes is on, or every time his name is is mentioned maybe there's a gong that goes on. i mean really bad to the level of like uh in in um breakfast at tiffany's with uh, with Mickey Rooney as yeah, I don't yeah. think it was quite that bad. It's, that, it's the '80s version because at least he was indeed an Asian person playing. Right, yeah. right. But it's the '80s version. I feel. Yeah. You know, I I think he used cliches because they were relatable. You know, like the Anthony Michael Hall character in in The Breakfast Club is 
going to be relatable to someone who has, you know, kind of high pressure parents and is very much about getting the grades. The uh, Judd Nelson character, uh, Bender, is going to be relatable to someone who maybe their parents are a lot less active in their their life. And they have, you know, like and, and Bender is actually sort of the glue that holds that whole group together, I think, even though he's the destructive one. He's the one that the catalyst that pushes conversation forward because he's always kind of trying to get under everyone's skin. But in trying to do that, he actually brings them all together. You know he's what I mean? He's kind of more of an asshole Ferris Bueller in uh, some yeah, ways. He's trying maybe. to get people to acknowledge who they really are. Total side note, whenever we were talking about Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's, I was thinking if they actually had a white person play Long Duck Dawn, who would it be? I think it would be Ron Howard. Because Mickey, <laughs> Mickey Rooney was a child star in the 30s, and then by the 60s, he was a movie star. So Ron Howard in the 60s was a child star. I think he would play the Asian if they were oh. if they were going that route. Oh. That's what popped into my head. But anyway, that's a I'm. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen. I don't think it was in anyone's <laughs> no, mind. No, I'm no, I'm glad it didn't happen too. Um, but what did happen was, of course, the Breakfast Club. So do you think that Bender was the main character? Because I know that's an argument among purists. I don't. Know. I I don't. The thing that I think works with that is there isn't necessarily a main character. The main character is whoever you attach to personally. And for me, like, I don't know. I, I was a little mixed, I guess. Like, uh, recently just rewatched it for, for this. And I was amazed by how much, uh, I can't think of her name, Ali Sheedy's character. Um, I found like not, not necessarily a one to one, but I, I really liked her. She, she is, and she's, on the edge of almost being marginalized a little bit, like, like Hughes does with some characters, but not, um, not to a point where it's just making fun of her, that sort of thing. Her, um, kind of conclusion is a little problematic, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the getting made up and then suddenly the, the sporto likes her. Um, but there's just something to that I, that I really like about the, the way she is a little closed off and secretive. And, you know, I'm not trying to be deliberately disruptive and immature oh, and childish. Please, please, please you're bender. Only, you're clearly bender here. The only part I admired about that character, the only thing I could relate to that character rather, was that she put her chips on her sandwich. And I don't know why I, more I don't people think it was don't. Chips. Do, I think it was Captain Crunch. It looked like Captain Crunch. I see. I thought it was Cheetos. I don't think it's Cheetos. Okay, well that is weird. Never mind. Then, <laughs> then she's a freak. Then she's a freak, really. and the sporto doesn't need to have anything to do with that. <laughs> um. Okay. So you said was it Pretty in Pink that you'd seen for the first time recently? Uh, Sixteen Candles. I actually still haven't seen Pretty in Pink, but I, you know, I, I was trying to catch up with some that I hadn't seen. I saw Sixteen Candles for the first time. I saw Planes, Trains, and Automobiles for the first time. Yeah, I was trying to go really? through the oh, stuff okay. that he had written and directed. Holy moly! Okay, so Sixteen Candles. Let's let's start with that one. How did that hit you? 16 Candles uh, feels like proto-Hughes to me. Um, it has a lot of things that he does later on, but he does much better later on as far as, you know, like uh, he's all over the place with music cues and and sound effects and that sort of thing, which plays a big part in, you know, in something like Ferris Bueller. Like there's sort of this juxtaposition between Ben Stein as – the I think history teacher. I'm not sure. Exactly. Economics is he? Is he an economics teacher? He is, he's, which he's is teaching. which is odd in high school. But yes, I think okay. So. He he is teaching economics. He's teaching them about the Laffer curve mm-hmm. and about voodoo economics. And then that's immediately juxtaposed with Ferris Bueller dancing to I believe the I Dream of Genie theme. And it couldn't be like a happier, cheerier sort of you know from these kids falling asleep um, in class to to that. Um, with and and the music cue really being something that that breaks that from like this is so boring that it's just 
Ben Stein talking about, you right. know, to, to this jovial sort of, uh, piece. There's a lot of that in 16 candles. There's a lot of, he's very manic with his soundtrack. I Actually feel, what's in interesting. Candles. Yeah. What's interesting about what you've just said is if most people were to say, Hey, if I were to ask most people, Hey, what do you like about John Hughes? They would say the, the particular trope. So it's, I related to it. Mm-hmm. However, I would argue that the reason he has indeed, uh, lasted so long and was so popular is not his skills as a writer, but more his skills as a director. Because what you're describing are more decisions made by a director. He was he was good at creating comedic moments and sound beats and and just mem- memorable cinematic moments, not just stuff yeah. that's on a page but on the screen. That that's actually interesting that you bring that up because something that I was thinking about probably honestly probably the John Hughes movie that I'm most uh, familiar with is Home Alone, and I'm amazed at how much of his other films are found in Home Alone, like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Um, has a very uh the the rushing trying to get from you know the the parents story i guess in home alone of trying to get back to kevin mm-hmm. in time for the holidays um or the the rube goldberg machine that i mentioned in ferris bueller or you know there's a lot of these little pieces um that uh, you see in the movies he directed that you then find in something like home alone and so I, I actually wanted to discuss, do you think he, how much creative control, because I don't know. I mean, maybe you do. Do you think he had in something like Home Alone, Home Alone 2, all I can, Beethoven? Yes, all I can, uh, the only kind of, the only support I can have for this is I remember on the Home Alone videotape, it had his used logo, which I assume mm. was his production company. Mm. So I think he was more than a writer to that picture. And Chris yeah. Columbus at that point was more of a young up and comer. He so was, I think he was that was a, a kind of a Brett Ratner of the time, except I, I I'll argue a more a more talented Brett yeah Ratner. more yeah. So I I think that was more of a Steven Spielberg presents kind of situation uh-huh. wherever it was okay. a John Hughes movie being directed by somebody else. Yeah, but let's talk about Home Alone. I uh, read Roger Ebert's review of that picture a while ago, and it sounded like he uh, he had nothing too kind to say about it. But I always enjoyed it as a kid. And Home Alone 2, Lost in New York as well. Do you think that those movies hold up? I do. Like, I watch them every Christmas. And there's definitely, like, I'll admit, there's definitely nostalgia that goes into it. But um, I I like them as well. I think that's that's another thing that I think you get early on in 16 Candles um, that you get from, I mean, like, the opening of 16 Candles and the opening of Home Alone are fairly close as far as you have this big mansion or McMansion with – a family, you know, kind of running all around and there's this rapid fire banter and everything. And, um, I, I think it's a very well-written, uh, story. I think it's, uh, a bit absurd mm-hmm. and he continued, he seemed to continue to get more and more absurd as he, uh, went on writing. writing uh, I, I mean, I, I think weird science would probably qualify as the hallmark of absurdity, but I see you, what you think it's more absurd than like home alone three or did he have anything he, to do with he that? He wrote home alone. 3. I'll be darn. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and well, the, the premise is more absurd, not necessarily the results. Okay. I mean, but then in, you know, home alone two, you've got a guy getting electrocuted and then just like, Walking up some stairs. Which um, actually I remember seeing that at like four or five years old. My parents saying, Hunter, don't ever do any of these yeah, yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. This will kill you. And they were they were very explicit about not doing anything I saw in Home not, Alone. Not rigging up any blowtorches or. Uh, yeah, the iron in the head and then the yeah, electrocution. Yeah. I, I think Home Alone still holds up. But 
you know, and I try to view it without that, that, you know, glaze of nostalgia, but obviously I can't completely get rid of it. I mean, Home Alone, the first one is one of the first movies that I remember seeing in a theater as a kid. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I can tell you where we were. I can tell you what we did beforehand. Like I, it it really was a seminal film for me as far as a a movie going experience. And I think for most of uh, our age group as well, all I can say about that it just occurred to me is it's a really good thing that the Joe Pesci from Goodfellas was not the Joe Pesci in Home <laughs> yeah. Alone because he would have killed Kevin McAllister oh, and it would yeah, have been terrifying. Yeah. But there is I, – I do love that that bit of like he can't swear like he j- typically does in a, uh, you know, in a Scorsese movie. So he just mumbles just absolute nonsense to get away – to get around it. Yeah, um, and so yeah, Joe Pesci is well warranted his reputation. I thought, I don't know what the hell happened to him, but that's a complete side note. I'd like to see him come back. Um, we've talked a little bit that, about this in, in the broad spectrum. I'm, I'm reviewing a lot of the people who have been made by John Hughes, so to uh-huh. speak. They weren't famous beforehand, and yet really none of them escaped it. They're kind of like Matthew Broderick and Ferris Bueller. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, a lot of it was they were young stars. You know, they were they were child stars or teen stars, and that's, you know— generally a pretty tough thing to get out of that's kind of hollywood purgatory anyway yeah so i mean i think the fact that it's sort of a double-edged sword where he was telling these stories that were uh that connected with a lot of young folks and that that starred young people but um you know putting the spotlight on them so young like then people expect them to be that or they have that i mean like we were talking with matthew broderick there i'm sure there are still people that only see him as ferris bueller and so it's a they you know, just put him in that box in their mind. And I, you know, Broderick's probably one that got a little further than, than most. I mean, when was the last time you saw Macaulay Culkin in something? Well, other than a giant pile of Coke, not a whole lot, but uh, (laughs) I, you know, I, I think Macaulay Culkin's probably, he's probably still loaded on, on his home alone money and his Richie, Richie rich rich money. money, Yes. He still keeps all of his money in a giant Mount Rushmore type setting. Yes. Monument to himself. But I would agree with you that, in some ways, these actors were victims of their own success, and so it's almost like we we don't want to see them old now. We mm-hmm. don't want to see them grow up. We only want to see them as teenagers in John Hughes movies. So let me ask you this: You are have outed yourself numerous times. This isn't even the first time, as you know, kind of being an old man. You know, being an old man from a very young age. Um, so of the John Hughes films, like we've been talking a lot about these teen movies, but you know, he wrote a lot of vacation movies, at least vacation, European vacation, Christmas vacation. I think those are the only ones. Do you know if that's, I don't know. I I don't think he did the last one. Um, he, you know, he had uncle Buck, he had planes, trains, and automobiles. Those are not, I guess uncle Buck's more of a family movie. So there's definitely elements there, but not focused on the kids specifically. Um, is that like. Do you connect with him more there? Do you like those better or what's your... I'm going to poke a pin into Uh what you just said because I think that's going to be the perfect bookmark to this conversation overall. And and I kind of I almost predicted this at the very start as this would where is where it would end. Okay. So I'll put a, put a pin in that and answer that in a See, second. I, th- I thought you were putting a pin in a balloon and going to make everything. No, oh, no, no, no. I'm putting a pin okay. into a bulletin okay, gotcha. board. Um, let's talk about probably you really are like the, sixty exactly. <laughs> Who uses pins on bulletin boards anymore? Um, the most consistent character in John Hughes movies is the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So. Have you been to Chicago first and foremost? I have. I mean, it's been – I was in like eighth grade, I think. So it's I've, been quite a while. Okay. I have not. How how closely does the Chicago of reality you to the Chicago of John Hughes? Um, 
That's interesting. I, I would say, I mean, John Hughes movies, particularly, or I guess really all of them, they, they exist in this heightened world. They exist in a world that's not exactly like, uh, you know, I, I was thinking while, while watching some of these, how much, how weird it is that he kind of parallels Wes Anderson in a way, um, not in like a visual styles, but in a thematic, like he, he creates a setting that's, uh, both recognizable, but then completely its own. And also, you know, the rich white characters and that sort yeah. of thing, uh, that people sometimes have a problem with. But, um, I mean, I, I think when I, we went to, you know, we went to the Sears Tower and we, I can remember looking down and trying to do the actual, like, head on the, uh, mm-hmm. head on the glass thing. And that was a, yeah, no I, c- I can't even think about that. Yeah. Um, uh, well, no, it was like a, not supposed to, you know, oh, okay. When we're allowed uh, to do that, yeah. Um, but you know, I so much of his Chicago also exists in these suburbs, these you know places that aren't inner city Chicago or aren't like the Chicago you visit. You're not going to visit the suburbs of Chicago and drive around the cul-de-sac or whatever. So, um, I mean, I I think Ferris Bueller might actually be the best representation that I can think of because, you know, Kevin McAllister's house isn't what I recall from my visit. So maybe it's a little bit of a mix. And I wouldn't visit that house because you're bound to get hit by a paint can or something like that. Yeah, there's there's probably some booby traps that have yet to be tripped. (laughs) Yeah, so just stay away from that house. Um, For me, since I have not been to Chicago, it's his version of Chicago is is almost like a paradise because to me, having grown up in the heartland anyway, it seems like this Midwestern metropolis Mm -hmm. that blends big city but also kind of the coziness that I like about the heartland and also his movies. And I don't know if this is accurate, but they seem to be in either spring or fall. And, and that adds to it in some ways is when I think of a, almost a cliche Thanksgiving setting, I think of a John Hughes movie. Okay. That's, that's interesting. I mean, I don't, I've never really thought about the seasons in, in his films, but I could see that a bit. Well, and so that, for me, the one thing about John Hughes more than his characters, which people can relate to, I think that's where most people come to him. For me, it's almost his vision of Americana, his vision of Midwestern Americana okay. that sticks okay. with me. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm going to the bulletin board. Okay. Chris, you, you can verify this. I'm taking the you're, pin you're, out you're of pulling, your question. You've pulled the pin out. My favorite John Hughes movie in a movie that I think is his masterpiece. And I hope you're not going to you're getting you're not going to, you know, poke a hole in the balloon and pop it. But my favorite <laughs> far and away is Planes, Trains and Automobiles. I think that's uh, it's a brilliant comedy. And I think it's it's very touching, I think. And also maybe because I'm older. In, in at least mm-hmm. spirit mm-hmm. Than, than body, I can relate you to can those relate characters. To two, two I can, I can, I can relate to two other. middle-aged men bickering. Yeah. Uh, so I, I really, I, beyond just the John Hughes thing, I really appreciate and like that movie and admire it. It's almost Capra-esque to me. That's interesting. It, it's Capra-esque, but a little, a little more jaded in a in a way, or a little more because like those two characters, particularly the Steve Martin character, is a little mean spirited in some ways. Like he's on the one hand, he's the family man just trying to get home to his family. On the other hand, he really never wants to be nice to John Candy's character who admittedly is annoying. And Steve Martin's really kind of selfish in, in a lot of ways. Well, I think that speaks to the brilliance of the two 
main stars is you have Steve Martin playing an asshole, but you still mm-hmm. like him because he's able to convey yeah. the inner niceness of this asshole, and you can see where he's coming from. And then John Candy, as you just said, is very annoying, but at no point in time was I annoyed by him because it's still John Candy. He's still extremely lovable. Mm-hmm. John so, Candy was great in this. I was a, like, and I don't know why I was amazed exactly, but I was kind of blown away by his uh, just, you know, I, even though he's annoying, like, I I could enjoy ha- spending some time with him. Like I I could definitely see reaching that point where it's like, okay, you've talked enough, dude. But um, there there was just something to his energy that I I really appreciated. Kind of like I mean, I thought Anthony Michael Hall in Sixteen Candles uh, was that I I liked the fact that he is this nerd with swagger. There's there's something that's you know not quite just your paint by numbers nerd where John Candy's not just quite your paint by numbers annoying guy. Like you still kind of love him. He's a, he's a lovable annoyance. Exactly. And I would go so far as to say John, John Candy is, uh, out of the beefy comedians, probably either second only to or tied with Jackie Gleason. I think that he's really a class apart when you think of that style the of comedian. Comedians. Yes, the beefy comedian. There's a sub genre. I didn't realize comedian. where you were going with it until you got to Jackie Gleason. Okay. <laughs> But okay. but but that idea of just a person who can be as in Jackie's Gleason uh-huh. case he was a bully and John Candy's case he was annoying but yet you still love these guys yeah, they're, yeah, and, that's and they're true. just effortlessly funny. You say planes, trains, and automobiles. I think the Breakfast Club is his. It, it, it's at least my my favorite. I think he does so much well, so much in that wheelhouse of the teenage angst movies. So well, it's it's the uh, the one that just nails everything right. I like planes, trains and automobiles a lot. I'd still probably put it a little behind Ferris Bueller's day off, but not by a ton. Your Capra comparison is pretty interesting. I I like that because it's, it is a, uh, it's a really well-made road film as far as like, how do you keep these two characters coming back together who don't like each other? And how do you keep escalating incidents to a point where it gets more and more ridiculous where like, each time you're like, well, that that's got to be the worst thing that could possibly happen to them, right? Mm-hmm. And it just keeps getting, yeah. And not just in, it's not just Capresque in the spirit; it's Capresque in the very filmmaking, which is what I like about mm-hmm. it. I would agree with you that The Breakfast Club is the quintessential John Hughes movie. But like I said a second ago, maybe it's you know being the middle aged man that I am, playing yeah. trains and automobiles is my favorite. Okay, I can accept that. Well, Chris, that's all I've got to say about John Hughes. Do you think Hughes are good? I'm good. All right. Well, Midnight Warriors, we want to know what you think. So please tell us. Are you more like Chris and identify with the pack of brat movies? Or are you like me and prefer the prairie home curmudgeons? Please email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Plus, the winner of our Rexus giveaway, coming up next.
All right, Hunter, recommendation time again. I'm going to assume you're not going to recommend your favorite Brat Pack film. Uh, so what do you got for us? Like, uh, you know, I've never actually, yeah, exactly. I've never actually seen St. Elmo's fire and I'm not even sure that's a John Hughes. I I don't think John Hughes is involved at all. However, what he was involved in is the picture I'm going to recommend. It's probably obvious by now. I've already talked it up over and over again. The only reason I'm recommending planes, trains, and automobiles here today is because it's available for streaming on Netflix and given their kind of precariousness i don't know how much longer that will be the case so for as long as you can watch planes trains and automobiles on netflix i would recommend taking advantage of that um i don't really have anything much more to add to it from what i said a second ago um, john just, candy has a pretty sweet mustache and he wears, has a, yeah where's where's some pretty nice boat you know ties. what we didn't say that and in yeah. you know those shower rings he was trying to sell were uh, really top notch i don't know why anyone wouldn't want to yeah, purchase so if those. you were on the fence before that's probably enough then, to get them watching. then you should then you should watch this picture but anyway yes i i do believe that it was if not his quintessential film in my opinion certainly his masterpiece featuring two marvelous performances by two of the great comedic actors of our time steve martin and john candy uh, if you have a day off from school, I would recommend maybe skipping Ferris Bueller and doing planes, trains, and automobiles first. Or if you have time, do both. But definitely planes, trains, with, and automobiles. With, with Ferris Bueller, I highly recommend that you do it with a group of friends. Um, I'll, I'll say that because this is actually maybe the first time I've watched it alone. And I felt like there is something to watching it with people and having like – there's an energy to Well, I'm to curious. Did you Bueller. watch it home alone? I, yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> Well, if you're if you're home alone and you're having your day off, uh, stream it on Netflix, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Okay. Well, my recommendation is actually going to be um, a bit of a throwback to our last episode. It's a film that I caught up with when I was doing my cruise control marathon, and it's Edge of Tomorrow. And the reason I'm recommending it is because this is a movie that I don't think we really talked much about it Um on the last episode, but it's a movie that whenever I saw the trailer, I thought this is going to be terrible. And it was really great. And, and, um, it's on HBO now, right now, um, in HBO go. And, and basically Tom Cruise plays this guy who goes from being like uh, a PR spokesperson for the military to a grunt in the military. And, um, he keeps dying. And every time he dies, he kind of regenerates back to like a day, day and a half before. And so it's got kind of a – seeing the trailer, I was like, oh, this is kind of a Groundhog Day but action movie. So basically kind of timeline or source code with Jake Gyllenhaal, which I actually also really kind of like. I That one I laughed at as well. So maybe this is actually a, a genre or a subgenre that is untapped that's actually pretty good. But um, I like it. He gives a great performance in it, but it's not just one where it's like, oh, well, Tom Cruise is good in it. So I enjoy it. Um Emily Blunt is also in it and she's just as good um, as sort of as a sidekick character, a character that actually she's this badass heroine who trains him in battle because he's, you know, he's not a soldier he's been, but he's been forced into this. So she kind of trains him to become a soldier as he dies countless times and uh screenplay by Christopher McQuarrie um, who directed ghost protocol, really, really good stuff. Really like each time you kind of think like, Oh, okay. I, I see where we're getting into the swing of the formula. Like he'll switch it up a little bit and give you, give you little tidbits and gives you a lot of like where he doesn't show you exactly what happened, but you can infer through just conversation. Like there's, there were, there were maybe a hundred deaths that we missed in between, uh, where we were and where we are now. Uh, that sort of thing. Highly recommend it on HBO right now. Check it out. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow. 
All right, Chris, we can no longer wait to our own edge of tomorrow. You've held us in suspense for this long. Who is the winner of the Rexodus giveaway? Well, Hunter, actually, part of me wants to hold you in suspense for yet another fortnight. But a larger part of me knows that the angry mob that makes up our audience will tar and feather me if I do. Well, at the very least, Chris, you see internet movie fans, particularly ours, are absolutely bonkers. Exactly. Therefore, without further ado... Well, are you sure, Chris? No more ado? I'm sure. With absolutely, positively, certifiably no more ado, the winner of the Rexodus giveaway is... Jeremy Hopkins. Congratulations, you've won your very own autographed copy of Rexodus. And we can't forget about the runners-up who won War Starts at Midnight sticker packs. Congratulations to Renee Fitzner and TC Gentry. Well, congratulations to our winner and our runners-up. I'm actually impressed that the uh, people who won this do not have the last name Cates or Gallagher, because I was pretty sure it was going to be a family member. We stacked the deck, but uh, no, surprisingly not. And we still haven't solved the mystery of our Japanese listener, who we are hoping, crossing our fingers, is Godzilla. Hopefully Godzilla. And that's probably the problem, is Godzilla, he's you know not very good with the keyboard. It's a little too small it's for a, his, Yeah, he would have yeah. to crush it, and yeah. he can't read a comic book anyway. However, you certainly can, and we want to just thank all of you who participated in this. It, it means a lot. Yeah, and congratulations to our winners. Uh, email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com to claim your prizes. Well, and that's a wrap for another episode at War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Midweek Memo. It's filled with recommendations, news about upcoming episodes, and exclusive articles written just for you. If you're the social type, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, it's pretty safe to assume you like us. So why don't you stop what you're doing right now and leave us a review in iTunes. It'll help us reach new listeners and it'll make you feel awesome. And even if you do not win a comic book for this activity, it really means a lot to us. If you like the show... Review us on iTunes. It makes a big difference, and we really, really appreciate it. Or if you are the trolling type and have just been hate listening through these credits, well, tell us everything we got wrong about John Hughes, Tom Cruise, and all the other things we talked about today at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or you can give us a call on the bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Music in this week's show comes from Generationals. Hear more at generationals.com. Tune in next time when Chris and I will be discussing the David Foster Wallace road pick slash biopic, End of the Tour. Thanks for listening. Bueller. 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 Bueller.